good morning, church. Um, my name is Joanne. I am from the Waterfall Life Group. I will then continue reading from Exodus 25, verses 1 to 22. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskin, goatskin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. You shall make it on a molding of gold round it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles in the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. They shall be put into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and two cubits and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, and on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spring out their, spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I shall speak with you all about that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joanne. Let's just ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we come here this morning and some of us have been walking in darkness. Some of us have been hovering in the shadows. And so we do pray that the light of your word and the power of your spirit may dissipate that darkness and draw us to yourself, the light of life. So, Lord, meet with us by your spirit and through your word that we may have a living encounter with the living God, the ancient of days. 
Speak to us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus was written by Moses, and it's the historical narrative of how God rescued his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. You remember that uh, they were in Egypt because Joseph had been uh, sold by his brothers. Jacob had 12 sons, and the sons hated Joseph. You remember the story, and he was sold into slavery. In fact, that's the first recorded human trafficking that we have in the Bible where Joseph was sold into slavery, and he went to Egypt, he was in prison, and then God raised him up, he became the prime minister of Egypt, and then he saved the nation of Egypt and also his family from famine and from death. Joseph died, the nation of Israel remained in Egypt, and over 400 years they grew, they multiplied, and then uh, the Egyptians enslaved them, and they cried out to God that he would rescue them. And God sent, God, God heard their cries, and God sent a messenger, Moses, to rescue them. And then you remember God, uh, Moses gave uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians ten warnings, ten messages, the ten plagues, that they may repent and turn to God, and they refused to listen. And so God spoke in judgment, and God brought judgment upon the Egyptians, and God rescued the nation of Israel through the Red Sea miraculously, and then led them through the wilderness through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, heading for the promised land. Let's quickly have a look at a slide on the screen so that um, you can see uh, just a little bit of where we are. So... um, up there was, uh, there's the Red Sea, and that's where the crossing was of the Red Sea. This is Elam, so that was chapter 14, Exodus 14, Exodus 16, Elam, um, and the wilderness there, they received manna. The Ten Commandments that David dealt with uh, last Sunday is there at Mount Sinai, and it's also there at Mount Sinai where God gave instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And then after that, another 40 years of wandering until they finally moved into the promised land. This morning from Exodus 25 to 27, we're having a look at the tabernacle. So let's quickly have a picture of the tabernacle so that you can see what it looked like. You can Google this. Uh, there was, uh, this was 50 meters by 25 meters. Uh, here's the entrance The entrance was always facing the sunrise, facing the east, and Israelites would come and bring a sacrifice, a lamb or a dove or a cow, and there was a bronze basin where the the sacrifices were burnt. There was a basin of water where the uh, priests, before they entered the holy place, would wash their hands and their feet. The Israelites were not allowed to go into the tent, only uh, only for the only for the priests, and that tent was divided into two rooms. That section there was called the holy place, and that section there was called the most holy place. So there were two rooms divided by this curtain. Let's have the next slide, which gives us a little bit more detail. Um, so there was a curtain here that was not a major curtain. That was the major curtain. And there you, have, there you have a high priest. It was only the high priest who could enter 
the most holy place. The furniture inside the, the tent of meeting is interesting. Uh, there was a lamp there which was shaped like a candelabra. So there was a shaft with three branches on each, each side. There was a table called the table, uh, table of the showbread where 12 cakes of bread were placed um, every week. Every week the priests would eat it and it would be replaced by 12 fresh loaves of bread. There was an altar of incense which was a little bit like, an, like a sacrifice. It, uh, it was lit so that there would be sacrifices before entering the holy place, the most holy place. There's the curtain. We'll see the curtain in just a moment in the text. And inside the most holy place, also called the, the Holy of Holies, was, was the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Let's quickly have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant so that we can see that. Um, the, whole, the whole tabernacle uh, could be moved, so it was portable. The tent was portable, all the furnishings were portable, uh, the ark was portable, it was carried by priests with these, with these poles. It was made of wood covered over with gold, and uh, on the lid, that's the lid there, were two cherubim like angels with their wings covered over the top of the lid. The top of the lid was also where the high priest once a year would sprinkle blood sacrificial blood for the nation of Israel and for himself uh, on, the, on the lid of the ark. That lid was called the atonement seat or the seat of mercy, the mercy seat. So there you have a little bit of a picture of what we'll be looking at in the text here and then learning what we can learn from God's word concerning the tabernacle. Let's get to the text. All right, so, so what we need to do is we need to take a step backwards and ask the question, why was the tabernacle necessary? Why was it so important for the life of Israel? Why, um, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? And for that, we really need to go back to Genesis. So go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Keep your place in Exodus 25. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Remember Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. So there's a great statement. That is one of the greatest statements in human history. In, in the beginning, God. God has been there for all eternity. There has never been a time when God did not exist. God has always existed. He was there before the world, before creation. In the beginning, God so at the beginning, before the foundation of the world was laid, before the world was created, what was there? It wasn't matter, it wasn't energy, it wasn't chance, it wasn't fate, it was God. The basis of the universe is not impersonal. If you had a shovel and you were digging down to find the basis of, of, of the universe, when you struck a rock, that rock is not impersonal. It's not matter or energy or chance or force or fate. No, it's not impersonal, no. At the bottom of the universe is God. God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship with one another, in perfect love with one another. A perfect God, a perfect Trinity. And that God's purpose was to create a people for himself. God's purpose has always been 
to have a people for himself. So he creates Adam and Eve, chapter 1 and chapter 2. The first marriage, the first family to populate the world. One marriage, one man, one woman in one place, God's place, Eden. Living in perfect relationship with each other, with creation, and with their creator. That was God's purpose. But then tragedy struck in Genesis chapter 3. Remember the fall. Adam and Eve reject God. They, they, they reject their creator. They reject his word. They reject his authority. You know the draw. They say to God, I don't need you. I don't want you. Get out of my life. I don't need your law. I don't need your word. I don't need your worldview. In fact, I'll make my own worldview. I'll determine my own happiness. In fact, I'll be my own God. That's what happened in Genesis 3. That's the fall. That's why the world is like it is. Because the creature rejected the creator. And brokenness entered our existence. God's response was one of judgment. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis 3, verse 22. Let me read. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So notice there verse 22, the sin of Adam and Eve was to attempt to usurp God's place. When it says knowing good and evil, it also means deciding good and evil. They wanted to be God. So God in judgment, verse 23, expels them from the garden. He expels them from Eden, from his presence. Verse 24, at the east of the garden, God places two cherubim, angels with flaming swords, to prevent them from returning, to prevent them from trying to enter God's presence covered with their sin and their rebellion. In fact, it was a mercy. It was a mercy that God placed those angels, those cherubim there with flaming swords to prevent Adam and Eve, their family, from entering or re-entering the presence of God. Eden is symbolic of the presence of God. To re-enter the presence of God clothed with their sin, clothed with their unrighteousness, Anyone who enters the presence of the Most Holy God with their sin will be toast. So what we have here is a mercy that God said, do not enter. God prevented them from entering at the east side of Eden. So the question is, Genesis 4, where is Adam and Eve? Well, Adam and Eve are outside Eden. They are outside of the presence of God. In fact, they are east of Eden cut off from the presence of God with no way back. As we say, up the creek without a paddle. And then it gets worse. Genesis 4, remember, Cain kills Abel. You have your first family murder. We hear about them every week. This is where it started, and this is what happens when you reject God. Chapter 4, verse 14, notice Cain says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Chapter 4, verse 16, notice, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here's the picture. The, the creature 
rebels against his creator. The creator responds in judgment. There's a twofold consequence. The creature is godless and the creature is homeless. So let's, let's have a look at that. What does that mean? Godless means our greatest problem as human beings is how can human beings like you and me, covered with sin and shame and guilt, how can we enter the presence of a holy God? That is the problem. God is utterly holy. He burns with holy fire. Remember how Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, describes the presence of God. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation shook and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's terrified, knowing that no sinful human being can enter the presence of God. Imagine a spacecraft being launched to go straight into the sun. And at some point, it will enter the orbit of the sun. And at some point, as it gets closer to the sun, what will happen? It's gone. It's evaporated. There's not a hint of it. Not a trace. That's just a tiny, tiny picture of what will happen to us if a man or woman enters God's presence covered with their sin, their shame, their muck. So the question is, how do sinful men and women enter the presence of God? And the answer is the tabernacle. Second problem, not only are we godless, we are homeless. Remember Cain said, I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. My dear friends, that is true of the entire human race outside of Eden, east of Eden. And by 2022, we are even further from Eden. We are even further east of Eden and we've never returned. And ever since, we have had a longing for home. A deep sense, we've had a deep, all of us, in one way or the other, we have this deep sense of dislocation, this deep sense of rootlessness, this deep sense that, that I'm a fugitive, I'm a wanderer. It's a longing for home. How do I explain that? Think about this. Haven't you discovered that there's a certain, certain kind of music, there's a certain song that when you listen to it, it it grows a kind of a longing in your heart. It's an inexplicable longing. You wish it would never end. You wish you could live there. And sometimes it's so deep, it's painful. We all know what that is, don't we? Have you wondered what that is? It's a longing for home. It's a longing for Eden. It's a longing for heaven. So the question is, how do we satisfy that longing? How do we quench that thirst? And the answer is the tabernacle. All right, let's go back to Genesis, not Genesis, Exodus 25. So Martin, you better be good now because this tabernacle is carrying a lot of expectations. Exodus... <laughs> Exodus 25, two principles, two principles as we look at the tabernacle. Stay with me. 
because it's wonderful. Two principles. Number one, the tabernacle is the map home. It's not home, it's the map home. So have a look at chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, have you got it there? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So notice verse 8, the purpose of the tabernacle was to restore our relationship with God so that we could have God in our midst. I can dwell in your midst. Verse 9, God provides the plan for the tabernacle exactly as I show you, meaning the tabernacle is a map showing us the way back home, and it's full of echoes of Eden. And the clues are embedded in the architecture and the furniture. Let me give you six echoes of Eden. There are many more, but I'll give you six echoes of Eden in the tabernacle. One. You'll remember from that picture, the entrance to the tabernacle was always on the east. It was always on the east where the sun rises. Why the east? Well, you'll remember that when Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, two cherubim with flaming swords were placed at the east of the garden to prevent them from returning. Now there's an open entrance at the east. The human race is east of Eden, and the tabernacle is open towards us. It faces towards us, inviting us in. Two, the list of materials for the tabernacle, 25.3, 25.7, begins with gold and ends with onyx. Just as in Genesis 12, the gold of that land is good and onyx is also there. Three, the lampstand in the tabernacle with all its buds and blossoms and the shaft with the six branches look like a tree. It's an echo of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Four, seven times in Genesis 1 we read, and God said, and God said, and God said. Seven times in the tabernacle instructions we read, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. Five, the creation account of Genesis 2, 1 to 3, ends with the Sabbath. The tabernacle account ends with the Sabbath. Sabbath is a picture of shalom, of peace, of wholeness. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 6, Exodus 26, 31. The cherubim are no longer guarding the eastern entrance. No, they're now guarding the most holy place, embroidered into the curtain. Have a look at that, chapter 26, 31. Chapter 26, 31, the, let me read, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Notice that. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. Isn't that wonderful? 
Remember Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's place. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God living in the midst of his people. Tragically, the human race is now east of Eden, godless and homeless. So the tabernacle is a map for us, showing us the way home. It's God's invitation to come home to Eden. When you have a look at this, it's, it's almost obvious when you see it that it's a picture of a domestic home. Imagine you are out at night. It's cold, it's wet, it's dark. And then you see your home, and there's, there's the doors wide open. And inside, there's a burning fire in a bronze basin. And as you go inside, there's a lamp that's always lit day and night, always giving light. And there's a kitchen table, and on the kitchen table is bread. Nothing symbolizes home more than a meal table where the family gathers around food and friendship. It's home because the father is waiting there. He's waiting. He's longing for you to come in. And now he takes you by the hand, and he wants to take you to the best seat in the house. It's called the mercy seat. You see, mercy and forgiveness are essential to any home, aren't they? Especially the household of God. My dear friend, you may be the prodigal daughter, you may be the prodigal son here this morning, a long way from home. Perhaps you're thinking, if, if people actually knew me and knew what I've done and thought and said, perhaps they wouldn't sit so close to me. Do they know that I'm a fraud? You feel like a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter. There's no question that sin has huge pleasures and huge thrills. That's why it's so enticing. But it's also no question that the pleasures and thrills of sin don't last. They fade, don't they? After a while they leave, and they leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. And then they can enslave you. And your sins can become chains, and sometimes addictions. And they can destroy your inner sense of self, of self-worth, your self-image. Perhaps you feel ashamed of yourself. The father is waiting there. The lamp is lit. The table with the bread is inviting. The doors are open. Come inside. Come home. Come home. But of course there is a problem because you're covered with your sin. You're covered with your muck, with your shame. And you can't enter the presence of God in that state. You'll be consumed in an instant, just like that spacecraft. Which brings us to our second principle. The first principle is that the tabernacle is the map home. The second principle is that the blood is the key home. So once again, the clues are embedded in the architecture and the furniture. The east entrance which wasn't locked as before, has been opened to any Israelite who comes in with a sacrifice, a dove or a goat or a sheep or a cow. Remember, the tent had two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, and a priest could enter the holy place. No Israelite, no ordinary believer could enter the holy place, only a priest, because any ordinary believer is covered by sin. And so the priest would take your sacrifice 
and he would burn it on the bronze altar and take the blood and wash his hands and feet and go into the holy place with your sacrifice so that you do not have to die, so that the animal has died in your place, the animal has died on your behalf, so that you can be forgiven, so that you and I do not have to die and shed our blood. Remember that both the Old and New Testament teach that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Now, for those of us who are African, that is not a difficult concept to understand, but people from a Western secular context find that very difficult to understand. Without blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But that is what God has ordained. Just like God ordained the laws of gravity, what goes up must come down. Just as God ordained the laws of maths, two and two is four. Just as God ordained the law of marriage, one man, one woman, one life, so God ordained the law of forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the Israelite stands outside, brings his sacrifice. The priest takes that sacrifice into the holy place so that the Israelite doesn't have to face the judgment and the wrath of God. And he presents that blood in the holy place. But there's still a problem. The curtain and the most holy place. You see, at the heart of the tip, tabernacle is the most holy place and at the heart of the most holy place is the ark which symbolized the very presence of God and the curtain excluded everyone from the very presence of God have a look at Exodus 26 again verse 30 26 verse 30 where are we Exodus 26 and let me pick it up from verse 33 and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place so the most holy place only the high priest could enter that once a year so you couldn't just waltz into the holy place the most holy place it wasn't just that you can come and go. It wasn't as if there was a two-hour tourist guide who said, well, here's the tent, here's the bread, here's the lamp. Let's go into the most holy place. There's the ark. Take your feet off the ark. Let me give you the history, and uh, then you can take your selfies. It wasn't like that. No, the curtain was a symbol of exclusion. It was a symbol of God's inaccessibility. Remember in verse 31, woven into the curtain was embroidered cherubim, like the cherubim with swords guarding the east entrance of Eden. The cherubim, the curtain, was not, not to protect God from us, but to protect us from God. We must remember, this is not popular in our Christian culture, but the God of the Bible is the God of the burning bush. He's the God of the ten plagues of judgment who brought death to the firstborn son in every family in Egypt. He's the warrior God who destroyed the entire army of Egypt by drowning them, a miserable, devastating, watery grave. 
Make no mistake, my dear friends, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is terrifying in his holiness and his majesty. Remember, God is not your girlfriend. You don't send him a message and say, what's up? How are you doing? It's not like that. So you stand before the curtain. Home seems so close and yet so far. You long to be in God's presence, yet you blocked off. The tabernacle is full of promise and is full of danger. The curtain is both a protection and a barrier. It's hung there to protect you from God. Because sinful people cannot survive an encounter with a holy God. I'm kind of cynical when I hear these stories of people who die. They say they went to heaven, they come back. I'm very cynical of that, especially non-Christian people. My dear friends, they wouldn't come back. They'd be nuked, be toast. You don't come back when you enter the presence of God with all your sin and your muck. No ordinary Israelite, ordinary believer, ordinary priest could enter the most high place ever. Only the high priest once a year making sacrifices for his own sin, making sacrifices for the sins of Israel, washing himself in water, burning the incense as a sacrifice, entering the presence of God with blood. So terrifying was the most holy place that when the high priest went into the holy place, they tied a rope around his ankle so that if God struck him down dead, they can pull him out without having to go into the holy of holies and be struck down dead. And there at the center of the holy place is the ark, a chest of wood covered with pure gold, with cherubim on the top, no swords to exclude, but open arms to welcome. Inside the ark were two tablets of stone. David talked about that, the Ten Commandments, last week. Inside the ark were the two tablets of stone, God's law, God's requirements, God's character, reminding Israel of how they are to live before God, but also reminding Israel of their guilt and their failure to live according to the law of God. Who of us, my dear friends, has loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength every day, every minute? None of us. We all stand guilty. But then there's the cover, the lid, remember? The solid gold lid of the ark was both its cover and the place where the high priest sprinkled the sacrificial blood. And that lid was called the atonement cover. It was called the mercy seat. Notice chapter 25, verse 17, quickly. 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will command for the people of Israel. Notice there that God says, you can only speak to me, you can only come into my presence, you can only meet me at the mercy seat. Without the mercy seat, we toast. 
We meet him at the mercy seat where the high priest has sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice which was sacrificed in our place. The blood is the key home. All right, so here we are, June 2022, Christchurch Midrand. Martin, if the, if the answer to our two ultimate problems of godlessness and homelessness is the tabernacle, well, Martin, forgive me, but, but where is it? <laughs> where is it? We don't actually call this a tabernacle. We call this an auditorium. So, I mean, where is it? Where's the bronze altar for sacrifices? Where's the altar for incense? Where's the lampstand? Where do you where do you put the bread? Where are the sacrifices? Why did you have sacrifices here? Where's the tabernacle? The answer is found in John 1 chapter 1. Turn with me to John 1 chapter 1. Let's read. John 1 chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God. No, there's a slight difference. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now there we have a wonderful description of the Trinity. Before the beginning, before the beginning of time was God. Before the beginning of time was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, which means the Word is God, but it's separate. So there we have the first hint in John's Gospel of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. And the Word was there from the beginning. The Word was God. All things were made through the Word. And then verse 14 is the bombshell. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, the word is Jesus. But the key word here, it's the Greek verb, dwelt among us. It's the Greek word, he tabernacled among us. He tented among us. Which obviously means we no longer need a tent. We no longer need a tabernacle because Jesus is our tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. We enter the presence of God, not through some building, not through some external sacrifice. No, we enter the presence of God through Jesus. We no longer need a lamp. We no longer need a candelabra. Why? Because John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You no longer need the lamp. You no longer need the candelabra. You no longer need a table for bread, because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So, my dear friends, our longing for home, our longing for Eden, our longing for heaven is met in Jesus because Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus is our true home. Jesus is our true destination. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our high priest. I'm not a priest. Royden, not a priest. Rafa certainly isn't a priest. 
No, we have Jesus. Jesus is our priest. He is our mediator. He is our sacrifice. He is the tabernacle. He is the ark. He is the mercy seat. And we approach our Father in heaven through him. And then you have the last bombshell. Mark chapter 15. Turn with me. Last bombshell. And I'm nearly done, so take heart. Mark 15, 37. Here we have the death of Christ. Mark chapter 15, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If it was human, it would have been from bottom to top. No, it's from top to bottom. It is supernatural. God tears that curtain, that barrier. And what a shock. Who sees this crucified Christ the first? Who recognizes Jesus for who he is? It's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, he's not a priest, he's not a high priest, and he's the first, so to speak, to enter the Holy of Holies, to recognize that this man was the Son of God. I mean, my dear friend, that is extraordinary. This is the worst of the worst. He's a Gentile, and not only that, he's a Roman soldier. Arguably, he's the very one who ordered the death of Christ. And God opens his eyes. God opens his eyes and he recognized truly this is the Son of God. My dear friends, this gospel, this entry into home is for anyone. If it's for Roman, Gentile Roman centurions who killed Jesus, the only innocent man who ever lived, it is for anybody. Let me close. My dear friends, the journey back home is not through Mecca, it's not through Rome, it's not through Mount, M Mount Maria. The journey home is not via your religious activities, it's not via a moral code, it's not via a philosophy, it's not via something inside of you, it's not via the ancestors or Mary or prosperity teaching. No, the way back home is via Jesus who died a substitutionary death on the cross so that we can be cleansed by his blood and enter his presence covered by his righteousness. So the great question, my dear friend, is have you turned to him? Wouldn't today be a good day? You know the sin. You know the guilt. You know the shame. You know the sense of fraud. Why not come to him now? If God can save a Roman centurion who caused and called the death of Jesus, he can save you. Why not come to him today? We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. Let's pray. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Father, thank you so much.
that we live after the death and resurrection of Christ, and we have access into the very presence of God because of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that there may be someone here this morning who says, Oh God, how I need it. Will you rescue me? Will you save me? And Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for, for many months and years, help us, Lord, to dwell on these wonderful truths, these truths that wash us and cleanse us and refresh us and give us new purpose and hope to serve you for another week. Lord, we pray for that, that your word may revive us. And those who are struggling with hopelessness and struggling with despair may look at Christ, the only one who can bring us into God's presence. Refresh us, wash us, fill us, and use us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.